The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we'll go ahead and get started. Want to have a special welcome always for anybody who's walking through the door the first time. I think uh, we can all imagine, um, even those of us who've been coming for a long, long time, and so Common Ground feels like a second home, but, you know, it's not always, it doesn't always feel safe to walk in a space like Common Ground, and for some people less safe than others. So I just want to welcome everyone and just grateful that people are willing to walk through the doors, and please let us know how we can make this place accessible, feel safe. We really want these ancient teachings to be available to everyone. And we know that that's a work in progress, learning how to make the place accessible. And then also uh, near the end of the month, I often just remind us how something like this happens. Now Common Ground's been around for 25 years. And uh, as you see, maybe you haven't seen, but we don't charge for any of the programs, never have. And the reason is we want this center to be built on this simple practice. It's not exclusive to Buddhism. It's, I think it's human common sense, this circle of giving and receiving. When a family is working well, it has that flavor of giving and receiving. It's not like the parents expect a payment from the kids or the, you know, partners expect, you know, equal and you know, exacting payments, like I'll be nice if you're nice and how nice you're going to be. There's a, a more natural giving and receiving whenever we have a wholesome healing relationship in any place in our lives. So we thought, well, let's walk our talk and see if, you know, a small nonprofit like Common Ground Meditation Center can operate in this way. And it really requires all of us to notice what it feels like to receive freely, no strings attached. We receive whatever we receive because of everything everyone's done previously. You know, all the support, all the work, all the volunteering, all the generations of people who pass these teachings down, one generation after another, were the recipients. And so we have to like let that in, all that goodness in. It's not easy to I find it very hard. It took me many decades, and I, I consider myself still a beginner in, le- in actually be- being able to receive love and kindness as a free gift from other people. It's not easy for me, so I don't expect it to be easy for others either. But when we do really let it in, you know you've let it in when you naturally, appropriately feel like giving back in a way that is connected with your life and your duties and responsibilities and so that you're not giving too much and you're not giving too little. You're doing it in a way that makes sense in your life. So it has a clean, a really light and good aftertaste. You don't regret, I didn't give enough, or you don't regret, I gave too much. And it's different for everyone. In some ways, when you're just getting started at a place like Common Ground that's operating in this way, it's good to hold back because probably if you, like for example, put money in the bowl, you might think, Oh, I have to. But see, we don't want people to do it with that attitude because it's a free gift. You don't have to do anything, right? 
you have to receive it as a free gift. That's actually harder than putting some money in the bowl. Like really let that in, that it's offered freely as an act of generosity. And in this way, that way of operating really protects the center. And it works well enough. And, you know, we have paid office staff. Some of you know Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager, and Gail Iverson, our longtime bookkeeper and former chair of our board of directors, and Shelley Graff, or the associate director, and myself, or the sort of administrators of the center. And then we, of course, support the teachers here. And when um, Shelley and I are teaching, our Donna comes at the end of the year of the board, uh, takes some of the donations that have come in and assigns it to us as our support for the next year. That usually happens at the end of the year. But when other teachers are teaching, like Patrice taught a couple weeks ago, and uh, then two-thirds of the donations that come in for that program go to the teachers. So that happens for most of our teachers because there are only two staff teachers, Shelley Graff and myself. Everybody else, teachers, get two-thirds of the donations for that program. And so that's how it works at the center. And then, of course, Comgrad about five years ago bought a, a retreat property. Corey Clementson has been out working very hard. He's a construction manager. We're renovating it so that up to 15 people can be practicing out there. And so when Donna flows in, then we end up with a beautiful building like this when donations come in, right? We don't take out mortgages. We just sort of turn whatever generosity comes our way into something good. So more generosity has come our way, and so we bought a farm in western Wisconsin about five years ago, and we've been developing it now into this beautiful community retreat property. Hopefully it will be done by the summer. And uh, it's been used now for the last five years, but we're in the middle of a big renovation. We'll be talking about that. Anybody who wants to stay after at 12 noon, maybe 45 minutes, an hour update for anybody who wants to learn more about the retreat property. But a lot of people have been going out and helping Corey. Corey is sort of on staff for this renovation period. He's giving us a very much reduced rate as our construction manager than what he normally earns when he's a contractor in town here. And uh, not only that, is living out there most of the weeks. Um, who knows how many? <laughs> it will be a good year of his life at least. You know, we really have come our prairie farm in his blood. Prairie farm, we call it prairie farm just so you know because it's the town that's closest to the retreat property and it's just become the name of the place. But it's Common Ground's retreat property at prairie farm. But you hear it here at the center as prairie farm. In any case, if you have any questions about how to be part of that, just contact Gail, the bookkeeper who works on Tuesdays, or come up and talk to any of us. Patricia and Lisa are program hosts. They can help you today. Or just contact the office at any time. We can answer your questions. There's more information, of course, on our website about how Common Ground operates and and some reports that the treasurer writes every year to sort of let everybody know how we're doing. And part of what we've been up to being a Buddhist meditation center and realizing, I mean, one of the things that people who are interested in the Buddhist teachings realize is the mind matters. And it's so interesting. It's like, it seems like, you know, what people think about me matters, or we think about where I live matters, or what I do for a living matters, or who my friends are matters, or the kind of world I inhabit matters. And yeah, that's all true, of course. And it also matters 
the way this mind is. And it's so interesting, you know, and it's totally understandable that as creatures that have been conditioned by evolution, mostly our senses go out into the world. What's out there, what we see, what we hear, what we sense out there. So it takes some real, what we could call spiritual training, right? It's not about following the mind because our mind is conditioned to be externally oriented. So we're training the mind to be interested in the heart, to be interested in the mind. And what we find, of course, is this whole world of mental activity, thinking. But we only notice thinking for an instant because we get seduced and lost and spun around by our thinking. And mostly who we are or what we are is somebody lost in thought. That's the short definition of what it is to be a human being. I don't think just these days, but certainly these days we know. What does it mean to be a human being? It means being lost in thought. Not just one thought, of course. It's like innumerable thoughts. And always one thought leading to the next thought, this process of association. We are literally trapped, pushed around, and suffer according to the thoughts that we're caught in. And this is really the truth of suffering. right? When we talk about dukkha, suffering, stress, it almost always can be tracked or reduced down to the mind being identified or confused by mental activity, by the imagining, thinking mind, feeling mind. But it's not about not thinking, not feeling, not imagining. It's about no longer being confused by the imagining, the feeling, the thinking mind. So a lot of us, when we get we learn enough being a human being that my thinking mind is oppressive. And then we veer off into the wrong direction, according to the Buddha, where we just want to get rid of it. That's why we drink. That's why we want to watch a movie or get lost in this or that activity is we want to break from the oppressiveness of our thinking, imagining, feeling mind, right? But we always end up adding more fuel to the fire by whatever we pursue. Whatever the way we're trying to get out of the oppressiveness of our thinking mind ends up training the mind to be more and more dependent on that identification with the thinking mind. So there's a very specific approach, which is to transform our understanding about what mental activity is, what it isn't. It's the not understanding or the misperceiving of mental activity that really goes to the heart of suffering. And not just our interpersonal or our suffering within our own hearts, but the suffering in the world, the oppressiveness, injustice in the world, racism, sexism, classism, all the ways we oppress each other in the world, they're just reverberations of what we're doing in our own heart and mind all the time. The outer is a reflection of the inner. There's no racism out there or sexism out there that isn't here. 
right? So we really are taking care of the world and all of the injustice when we own up to, oh yeah, there's a mind, there's a heart here that's not being clearly understood. And this is sort of the one of the best, most simple definitions of delusion or ignorance, which the Buddha places right at the problem, at the heart of the problem. Like I said, it's the misperceiving or the misunderstanding of the mind or mental activity that's really at the heart of the problem, right? And that ignorance is the presumption that we already know. Like, what one of the things we presume we know is, I don't have to look within, because I already know it's me. So why would me need to look inward at me? It's me, right? So that arrogant presumption that I already know what this inner space is, the big first step is to realize that we don't know what we would call humility or curiosity. Actually being curious about the nature, the activity of our own mind and heart. That's a huge step. And it's not easy. We should be very respectful about how hard it is to turn that corner because so much of our society and just our internalized conditioning is to remain distracted. And when whatever distraction we're pursuing isn't seductive enough, we find another distraction. Or look at the news, or gossip with this person, or worry about this, or plan about that. So that now our mind, our conditioned mind, habit-based mind, it's really, really, really good at filling up the space of our lives, right? We have no trouble filling up the space of our lives. I've been mostly on retreat Monday through Friday this week, and for the next several weeks I'm going to be practicing. I'll work one or two hours a day, but mostly just be on retreat at home or at our retreat property. And I really see that. You know, one of the nice things about not doing a formal retreat where there's a schedule and led by a teacher, but you're just set aside some time, is you can do your practice schedule free. So like when I do my formal sit, I don't time it. You know, I just sit as long as I want to sit. Then I'll walk or do some mindful exercise or some mindful work. Then I'll sit some more. Then I'll putz. And then I'll do this. Then I'll do that. But all in the spirit, Remembering to just, and one of the things we notice when we're practicing that in that more informal, relaxed way is the tremendous capacity of the mind to fill up space, the thinking mind, the imagining mind, the feeling mind to fill up space. It's like a production studio on steroids, right? Highest, most sophisticated production technology And it's like hard not to use that capacity to worry about stuff. So I'm not on retreat on the weekends, so just so in case you were about to judge me. So last night, (laughs) when and I watched a movie, my wife and I watched a movie, the one that I I guess had had come out a couple years ago, I hadn't seen it, about Valerie Plain and Joe Wilson, the uh, people that were the woman that was outed uh, by Scooter Libby and Carl Rove um, in the setup to the second Iraq war. 
um, because they weren't going along with the, what the people in power were saying about Saddam having weapons of mass destruction. And so I noticed, like, for example, having seen that movie last night, in my mind being a little bit more sensitive, right, more uh, raw and open from the week of practice, you know, that the impression of the movie, right, it, it lands in a different way when the mind is sensitive. Maybe I shouldn't have watched that movie last night. <laughs> I mean, it's not like a provocative movie. I mean, in some ways it's provocative because it it strums those ancient strings we have about, you know, con- you know the elites are running the show and screwing us over, you know, that those kind of strings, which the reason there are strings is because there's a lot of truth to those feelings that, you know, we're pawns being taken advantage of. And so I noticed the impression, like whatever it's been now since 9 o'clock last night when the movie ended until so over you know, 12, 14 hours, whatever it's been, I've noticed just the reverberations, right? It's like now it's that part of the mind that knows how to fill up space. It's got some really good material <laughs> to play out over and over again. And we do that with everything that's made an impression on our heart, any of our dramas. And how many dramas can we name in 10 seconds? I mean, things that have a lot of juice in our heart and mind. Don't you think we could at least come up with one a second for 10 seconds? Like really juicy, dramatic things that our mind would very easily fall into and then have no problem sort of spinning for a while before needing a new drama. Right, And then when we exhaust those top 10, that top 10 list of dramas, we can find old wounds, new exciting things, right? There's really no end. And the interesting thing is the more you practice, you think in some ways it's true, we get more immunity the more we practice, like the mind, because of the increasing wisdom, the mind is less likely to take the bait of our worries, our dramas, right? But the downside of a lot of practices is when your mind does take the bait and decides to start worrying or planning or fantasizing, the production studio has even greater capacity because the mind has more energy. The more you practice, the more bright, the more nimble the mind is. So when you do have lustful thoughts or you do have hateful thoughts, self-righteous thoughts, or you do have utopian thoughts about how the world could be perfect or fantasies about everybody loving each other unconditionally, those wholesome and relatively unwholesome mental activities are more seductive the more you practice. So we have to be in a funny way, in a non-tight way, more on guard. The Buddha calls this guarding the sense gate. So when a thought arises, a sound arises, a sensation arises, an emotion arises, that balanced, wise and kind wisdom or presence is right there. Oh yeah, it's just that experience being known. It's just bait. And that's not in a dismissive way. 
It's just like I can spin with this for hours or I can just feel what this is to feel, see what this is to see in and of itself. And sometimes in being having an intimate, clear connection, we'll know like, you know what, this would be good to think through. But not obsessively for hours, right? I'll, I'll do two laps with this, you know, and then I'll put it down. I see if any new riffs on this particular kind of thinking or imagining will come out of those two laps, two rounds, thinking about it for a couple minutes, thinking it through, right? Because it's just basically the mind has abstracted, created a little bubble. It's it's like a parallel universe, the abstraction. So we're thinking about our life. It's not actually our life. This is the delusion that goes with thinking is that the thinking, the imagining is our life. But it's a bubble. It's an abstracted bubble that looks like our life, like a dream looks like our life. right? But it can be useful, obviously, to think things through, to plan things out to have a conversation about something with a, a friend or you know, someone we're engaged, interacting with in our lives, right? to work something out, and then to put it down. And not to assume one of the catches with our dramas is that I'm not going to put it down until it's resolved. But one of this telltale signs of wisdom is you know nothing is ever resolved completely. So we have to put things down knowing that it's still unresolved. Are we done enough with this? Is two laps enough? Because part of what that wisdom is, is knowing that the feeling of it being incomplete, unresolved, knowing how to be with that feeling. It's like uh, a good example is with my partner, Win Fricky, the co-founder of Common Ground, good friend of mine, <laughs> one of our important teachers when we can get her to teach her. Um, but, you know, when we're engaged in our relationship, discussions about a relationship, sometimes heated, sometimes intense, sometimes really painful, often productive, right? It's like there's that magic now, just because she's a really deep practitioner, we've both been practicing a long time, where we, we kind of like first, of course, initially in the deluded land, where we think that this person is the cause of my suffering. And they think I'm the cause of their suffering, right? And then then they're the enemy when that un- understanding is there in the mind. Like if only you were better or different, then I wouldn't suffer, right? So they're seen as the problem, the cause of my suffering. And then, you know, in that the throes of the discussion and argument or whatever it looks like, feels like, then some sense settles in and we realize the suffering is here and the cause is here and we're in it together and we're each, in a sense, independently responsible for addressing our suffering, owning our suffering, owning our participation in what is here in our hearts and mind. But somehow we're linked. We're not saying like, doesn't matter. And then we get some clarity because now we're a little bit more honest about our own participation. And it's an empowerment, right? 
Because if I place the cause of my suffering here, I'm also open to the idea that there's some way to be with my suffering. This is really important. This is not just about interpersonal relationships, but it's also in terms of our suffering with the world we live in and all the injustice, all the imperfections in our world. We can keep assuming that if we had a different world, different leadership, whatever, then. But is it possible for this heart to be open, wise, loving, intimate, even with our very, very, very imperfect world? Do we have to wait till the world is perfect before our heart can be open and released, loving and wise, easeful? And this is what I mean about, it's not about like we're going to practice until we don't have any more dramas, any more unfinished business. It's really about practicing so we can be at ease and intimate with the unfinished business. And we know when to put it down and we know when to pick it up. We're not afraid of putting it down. That's enough news. You know, right now, I'm not going to do anything about criminal justice reform, you know? So I'm going to put that down in my mind, knowing that it's the work's not done. Or I'm going to put down the fact that my intimate relationship with my partner is an unfinished project. <laughs> not only is it unfinished, it's unknowable, right? It's like, I don't even know how to fix it. I don't even know how to assess it. It's just what it is, wonderful and messy and incomplete and undone, right? It's like life, but I'm going to put it down and I'm going to learn how to pick it up. And this is the thing about understanding the thinking mind, the moving mind, the feeling mind, is we train in putting it down, we train in picking it up. We're not afraid of thinking and we're not afraid of abandoning or putting down thinking. And that's really, uh, some of you know, we put some handouts up online. It's in the weekly email when we list this weekly practice group. And then also you can find it on our website under uh, resources. And then there's something called the Dharma blog. And right there you'll see these links. There's a number of articles about working with the thinking mind. And Shelley and I are giving talks on the thinking mind, and maybe Patrice, she'll be teaching on a Wednesday later in December. We'll be covering this territory for probably the remainder of the year, how to work with the thinking mind. And I mentioned last week, there are five strategies when just being aware of the thinking mind isn't enough. We have these five strategies. And I'll just review them again. But I want to mention that the first strategy is just to be aware of the thinking mind. And this is from one of my teachers, Saito Utejaniya, this Burmese uh, Buddhist monk. Somebody asked Saida, Saida just means uh, like a teacher. When you are aware of thinking, it seems difficult to disassociate the sense of self from it. And this is what Saida said in response. There is no need to disassociate because it's about knowing what is happening in the present moment as it is. You know there is thinking and you know the sense of I. Because you recognize both, you are on top of both. Right? So we don't need to worry about that the mind is caught in a drama. 
or the mind is identified, like we're having some thought and some, and the thought comes with a lot of emotion and it feels very personal, right? Because being aware of it means that the wisdom knows that it feels very personal. It's not about it not feeling personal. It's about having a clear recognition that whatever my mind is doing right now feels very personal. Oh yeah, when it feels very personal, it feels like this, it looks like this. And that's like that example I gave, you know, when I'm in an argument or a discussion with my partner. It's like, it always feels personal when it's, you know, about our relationship, of course, because it cuts deep. Those relationships especially cut deep. They're, you know, our very deep personal sense of safety is tied to this relationship, you know, this person we live with, we share things with. And so when the relationship is sort of unstable or unknown or disrupted in some way, you know, that primal sense of safety is also exposed or the primal sense of not being safe, vulnerability is exposed. But we can notice that. We can just be aware. Oh yeah, this is what it feels like the earth is in motion, like everything is unknown. Maybe I made a mistake, you know. And it's so empowering not to be afraid of that thought and the feeling that goes with that thought. right? Because that's what wisdom is like. Oh yeah, that's just that feeling. I think like if I were a couple's therapist, if I could somehow train couples to learn not to be afraid of the thought, I shouldn't be in this relationship. Like to have a really clear-minded, open-hearted, easeful-hearted relationship to any kind of doubt that might arise. I think it's really how we deal with so many things. I've just, in my own work, uh, anti-racism work, and getting to know better my own conditioning as a white person, conditioned by culture, you know, growing up in the late 50s and 60s, and just the kind of programming that you get growing up like I did in that time and place with those forces at play, right? And then getting to know it, it's like it's so important to be able to see the conditioning honestly without having to judge it as good or bad. It's just how it is and has this sort of consequences. Right? We don't have to get tight. We don't have to be afraid to see the conditioning. It's healing. It's liberating for myself, for sure, and probably for the wider world, for all of us to be doing that kind of work where we're unpacking our conditioning around sex, around race, around power, around class, around all these ways our hearts and minds have been conditioned. And we have to like be happy to ventilate, to expose all of that. Not unhappy, not afraid or embarrassed. It's actually not personal. We're responsible for it in a very real sense, but it's definitely not personal. It's there, it's real, but I don't need to be personally ashamed by it. 
I just need to learn how to deal with it skillfully so it doesn't cause anybody harm because that just builds or feeds the suffering in my heart and in the world. So <clears throat> our first practice is just to be learn how to be aware of mental activity without being confused by it. But it's not often easy when the momentum, right, the seduction of the thinking mind has more momentum than the wisdom has momentum. Then we need these five strategies. And this is what we've been covering. And this is what you can read about when you track down these handouts, these articles. So the first one, and they just be, require more and more psychic involvement. So the first one is relatively easy. is to notice your mind is obsessing caught in some kind of thought, and to substitute in the opposite flavor. So if the obsessing is being driven by hatred or anger, then define something to think about that involves kindness. And it doesn't have to be the same person or people that you're angry with. It's probably better to like have kindness to yourself, or kindness for your pet, or kindness to some niece or nephew in your family. It doesn't matter because when you bring your attention to something that you have a kindly attitude for, it, it's impossible for the mind to sustain the anger because they don't fit. Anger and, and kindness don't fit inside the same mind in that same moment. So it's like the Buddha says, using a solid peg to push out an old rotten peg Right? You pound it in, pushes the old one out. So by directing your attention to something wholesome, if you're caught in greed, we bring to mind impermanence. The reality that things keep changing. If you're caught up in doubt, you just ground in something here and now, something present, like standing is like this now. Feeling the feet touching the earth feels like this. And that connecting with something simple and direct and ordinary pushes out the spinning, doubtful mind. So these are called the antidotes. So that first one, just to remember, you could call it substitution or replacement, where we're replacing a thought with another thought. And that other thought has a particular flavor that makes the mind immune for uh, from the obsessive tendency coming back in. And then the next one is you reflect on the results. So this is, takes a little bit more engagement where you're realizing, okay, when my mind is thinking in this way, obsessing in this way, caught in this way, what kind of person, what kind of heart do I set in motion? Who do I become? If this is what I do day in, day out, who am I going to be in five years? What kind of mind or heart will be there. If you're spinning with lust, wanting a relationship to be a certain way, wanting to win the lottery, wanting to become a famous person, or whatever the lustful, wanting thoughts might be, you'll be better at being lustful in the future. right? You won't necessarily have what you want. You'll just have more wanting in the mind. So you can imagine that. And the Buddha imagines that as or thinks of that as imagining a, a necklace, a garland of rotting flesh around your neck. You'd be disgusted by that. So when we see what we're setting in motion because of the obsessive tendencies, 
we want to be disgusted so the mind does this. Ooh, right? That not even personal, that reflexive letting go of whatever the unskillful obsessing is because the mind realizes that's not helping. So the mind just lets go. So how to see the obsessive pattern from a particular angle where that natural reflex of letting go, whoa, that is not who I want to be or become, happens. And that, like I said, it isn't you judging you. It's just a natural movement of the mind. And the same way, when you catch yourself holding a hot pan, you let go, right? Or, you know, if you're engaged in a habit, whatever it is, eating cheesecake, and then you see somebody who's overweight in a way that like, oh, I don't want to, that's, or you're smoking and you all of a sudden read an article about lung cancer, or, you know, you're driving and texting, and then you pass a terrible accident on the freeway, right? It's like, it kind of hits in a different way, like you put your phone down, you put the cheesecake down, you put the cigarette down, or whatever it is. You're gossiping, and then for some reason, a few seconds later, you you have a window into how broken-hearted someone is because they found out someone was gossiping about them, right? It's like that hits home when we see who we're becoming or what we're setting in motion, and the mind is appropriately disgusted, and it lets go naturally. That's the second strategy. And I'll just mention the third before the children come in, where we're practicing ignoring, basically. And so the first strategy of substitution, it's like a very skillful replacement. We're bringing in a thought that's perfectly designed to make the mind immune. The third strategy strategy isn't so subtle. It's a little bit more blunt, like what can I pay attention to what is the mind going to be interested enough in to break the addiction to whatever I'm thinking about? What can I give my mind? You know how it is when a kid is doing something, poking a bobby pin in the electrical outlet, you know, and just because kids get obsessed about things, and especially when mommy or daddy says you can't do it, then they want to do it all the more. So you need to give them something that really gets their attention. Well, I'll give them this to play. I'm looking at Patrice, and I know she's had dogs for a long time, right? And it's the same thing. Dogs, you know, want to chew your new, very perfect pair of shoes you got for $120 or whatever, you know, $80. And for some reason, they want to chew that pair of shoes, right? Well, you find very quickly something for that dog to chew. You're willing to go to the store and buy the bone that's just perfectly designed to make a dog want to chew it so it's not as likely to chew your shoes. And this is that uh, ignoring, or you could call redirecting. Like, what can you dangle in front of the mind so the mind goes there? And when the mind goes there, it's relatively wholesome. Do you want to go for a walk? How about, you know, making some nice soup for yourself? Because then when I engage that activity or go hang out with this friend, I have to put down this obsessive activity. How can I break it? Because we're willing to do anything rather than to continue the unwholesome obsessing.
But you can read more about these five strategies and just start working with them in your daily life. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.